Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September 22, 2024. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Hi, thanks for tuning into the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission, and this is the commission's weekly turn at the microphone here at MPB. Uh, each week we come to you with an in-depth discussion with a different creative Mississippian. That can be an artist, a musician, a craftsperson, or someone who works in their community to help promote the arts. Today we're going to be talking about photography and, and the Delta and, and kind of the, the Delta Blues life with our guest, Will Jacks. Will, welcome. Thank you, Larry. It's great to be here. I appreciate y'all having me. Well, you are a very active professional photographer in the northern Delta or mm-hmm. Delta-wide region, but you've got a brand new book out, The Reason Why You're Here Today. And uh, so tell us a little bit about this book. Kind of give us a, an intro to this book real sure. quick. Well, this this book is uh, it's about Poe Monkey's Lounge, which was uh, not just a juke joint in the Delta, but it was really an anchor of a lot of Mississippi's promotion of the blues as we have uh, work to recognize our artistic heritage, but also build an economy around it. And so for about 10 years or so, I visited, um, made photographs, and really gave a lot of thought to what that means, uh, building an economy around your culture and your art. And, uh, and so the book, while it is a specific space of Poe Monkeys, it's also meant to examine what we've done well, what we could do better as a state as we promote our culture and artistic heritage. Yeah. Well, we're going to get into the book in a little bit, but let's find out more about you. Tell us sure. about, so are you, you're a native of the Delta, right? I am. I, I was born and raised in Cleveland, uh, graduated from high school, thought that it would be the last place that I'd ever come back to. I went to Millsaps College for undergrad, played football and baseball down there, studied Spanish, Made my way up to Oxford, taught 7th and 8th grade English for a year, went back to grad school, uh, envisioned myself being a writer at one point, and then realized that uh, I was not really in love with the craft of writing. I liked writing when it was easy, but not when it was hard. And uh, and made my way over to the journalism school, eventually started in the creative writing program or attempted to get in the creative writing program, but wound up in journalism uh, in graduate school there. That's where I found photography seriously and immediately recognized that process as something that I did enjoy, that even when it was hard, I still really liked it. Uh, and it made sense to me, the math of the camera, uh, the structure of composition. It was an artistic form uh, that I finally found that made sense to me. And I'd tried for years to paint and draw and uh, none of that, just pottery was the worst for me. Um, but photography worked. And it was actually the recognition that the camera was like this golden ticket to see the world in ways that I normally hadn't. It was like this automatic access to what was beneath the surface. And I was really drawn to that and a better understanding of uh, what happens beneath the theater of life. So did you, when you were at Ole Miss, did you, was it originally doing photojournalism that kind of no, brought you was, in? No, it was, it, well, the program then, and I believe it's still that way. I've taught in the journalism school uh, in the last few years as well. Not now, but I taught there for about four years. And the path was still the same in 2011, 2012, as it was when I was there in the mid-90s. And it was primarily a broadcast or print 
direction, and I chose broadcast uh, really because of the visuals. I happened to do, I went to governor's school when I was in high school and spent the summer documenting that program. That was the class that I took, and I absolutely loved it. I loved running the camera. I loved making the images. I loved finding music. So all of the documentary nature of it was something I was drawn to. Uh, but when I got to undergrad, I didn't have that opportunity anymore. But when I got back to Ole Miss and journalism school and saw that was available, that was what I jumped on. And so it was more TV news mostly and radio as well, um, but eventually morphed into photography once I uh, discovered that opportunity also. So did you have any um – were there photographers that art photographers that you studied under, or was this not more them, of a, a self? Not them. Most okay. of what I have done has been self-taught. Um, I was while I was at Ole Miss, I had a I don't know maybe an hour lesson on how to process black and white film uh, and how the cameras work that we had at the time, and then that was it. But I had access to all the film that the student media program had, uh, all of the gear. And uh, and so I just taught myself, and then I moved back home and continued to do that. And thank goodness for the Internet and the ability to search for answers. Uh, it was not that way when I first started, but it really helped um, as I progressed. But, yeah, everything's totally self-taught. And were you, you, were, you started in the film era, right? So I guess you learned mm -hmm. how to mm -hmm. do the actual, you know, the developing and all I that. Did. And yeah. that, that's just, um, for people who haven't done it, it is kind of like its own world. You know, you take the pictures, but then the developing part is this kind of, I don't know, other world that you and, enter, you know, that's different from any other space. Yeah, it's magical. And I still do it. Um, so now my job is less... I do less actual content creation and more kind of direction of projects and work with other photographers <laughs> and filmmakers uh, to create projects. And I kind of come up with the outlines and what we're looking for to do and then have other people help me actually create it. I still do some photography as well in that manner. But my photography now has actually, I have not, other than my work work at the university and with the Mississippi Delta National Heritage Area, I've not used a camera in my personal work regularly for a year and a half, two years. I'm still making photographs, uh, but I'm doing them in the dark room uh, with all of the traditional materials that are available to me in the dark room. And, uh, and I'm really grateful that I had that background early on. Uh, I didn't, sh I probably shot film for two or three years when I first started and converted to digital probably around 99 or so, I would bet that I was probably one of the first practitioners of digital photography in Mississippi. And uh, I was working for a furniture company. And so that helped do that transition. And uh, and then I didn't use the darkroom for years and began to miss it immensely. And in the last two or three years, I've reconnected with it. So are you working with um, like historic negatives of yours or what, what kind no, of stuff are you doing? No, I'm working there? with found objects. I'm working okay. with... Um, Knowledge of how uh, silver gelatin, paper, and chemicals react with each other. Uh, sometimes there's not even an object at all. It's simply making images with the photographic paper and my imagination and really experimenting and playing in the darkroom. Uh, sometimes it's actually using objects and making photograms, which is um, uh, a technique of using objects to block light and create silhouettes on the pages. Okay. Well, uh, 
For those of you just tuning in, uh, this is the Arts Hour, and today our guest is Will Jacks. He's a photographer based in the Delta. He's got a brand new book out called Poe Monkey's Portrait of a Juke Joint. Uh, before we get to Poe Monkey, though, I was um, looking at your website and kind of seeing, and you have a lot of kind of environmental, like yeah. big, you know, it's the Delta, so it's a lot of big open spaces. Right, right. And uh, so is some of that, I, I, one of them, one of the images was, I think the... Um, it's the old house that's built on the Indian Mound. Mm. I think the one Mount is Helena near near, yeah, near yeah. Rolling Fork, right? That's right. Okay, so was that like uh, aerial or drone it is. shot? Yeah, okay. it's an aerial. I have yeah. So I have a drone. Uh, I actually don't do much still photography with it. But that particular image was born out of that. Mm. That was actually a project that I did with the Heritage Area, where we created um, early on a website, top forty places to. It was in conjunction with the Grammy Museum there in Cleveland. And so the theme was top 40. And so we put together a website that was top 40 places to visit in the Delta. And we worked with uh, people in each county to kind of target what those places would be. And so that was one that that came out of that project. Um, The video of that from the drone is really great because it just sweeps right over the top of the, Mm -hmm. the house. I probably should put that on the website at some point. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's a it, it is an amazing thing to see if you if you're just driving. Is it? It's not on one. It's uh. It's just off of sixty one. Sixty one. You can so, see it from sixty one. Yeah, right, yeah. If you if if you know where you're looking as you drive down north or south on sixty one, mm-hmm. you can see it off in the distance. Right. Um, if you aren't looking for it, it can be easy to miss. It's probably I don't know two, three hundred, four hundred yards off of Highway sixty one. Uh, definitely visible from there. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a little county road that goes right beside it, though, and it's and especially when um, in July and August and September when the fields are all grown up around it, and you just kind of look and you see this house that's emerging. It's like it levitating or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's amazing. Talk about you know uh, uh, the Delta is one of our only spaces in the state that you you know you can see the horizon mm-hmm. or you get some horizon kind of views. Talk about this. The, the peculiarities of maybe of, of being a photographer, of, of documenting that, yeah. that that environment? Well, you know, from like a landscape <clears throat> perspective, the Delta is really tricky to make landscape photographs. And I'm, I would not consider myself a landscape photographer at all. But most landscape photographs are going to be composed in a fairly similar pattern of foreground or near ground in the image. Then there's going to be something in the middle and then there's going to be background. So think of like mountains where you see one real clear in the front and then they kind of uh, fade a bit and gray out as you as you go through the photograph. When the Delta, there's not much of that. Everything is just flat. So it's a very linear space. Um, photographs often reflect that linear space. It's hard to give a sense of depth when there's very little foreground, when everything just stretches away from you into the horizon. And I think that's an important thing to keep in mind is that idea of depth. And the Delta both visually can fool you with that sense of depth. There's a bigness and a grandness, but there's not an immediate view of layers that's there. And I think anytime we encounter a place, we start our encounter with that visible thing that uh, is the first thing that becomes present to us. And uh, if we're not careful, that visual thing can fool us as to what's actually there. Now, the delta, the land itself has layers after layers after layers after layers. 
that's why the soil is so rich and fertile. And I think the community that's there is actually the same way. It's layers that are dis- disguised by uh, a fairly binary surface. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. We're back on the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey, and our guest today is Will Jackson. He's got a brand new book out on University Press called Poe Monkeys, Portrait of a Juke Joint. So let's set the stage about this. Just give us an overview of who who Willie Seabury, sure. Poe Monkey, was and, and a little bit about his club. Yeah, so Willie Seabury um, is from Marigold, from that area right outside Marigold. Uh, his juke joint, his house, is not far from where he was born and raised worked for the Hyder family farm for years, as his father did. Uh, Sometime in the early 60s, uh, he he created this club, uh, or according to what his wife, Eula Mae Drake, says, she started it, uh, but he definitely continued it. Uh, And over the years, it became a pretty iconic location in Mississippi for tourists and travelers that were interested in coming to the region. And so this is, uh, and this is a distinctive in that it's, it's not in town. It's, it's out in the, talk about its, its yeah, placement. So there's, it is commonly referred to as the last of the rural juke joints. Uh, one could probably argue that most of Mississippi is rural. So even if something was in town, it could still be considered rural, but this was definitely the last of the juke joints that existed in the home of its creator uh, and in a tenant farmer's house. And so this is a structure that morphed over the years for sure, but uh, was still fairly true to what it would have been in the 40s and 50s when uh, Willie was born there. Not in that specific space, but on that land. And... Um, and so to get there, uh, you had to, uh, I was with Boyce Upholt earlier today and we were given a presentation and Boyce did a lot of research on some of this too. And one of the things that he found on TripAdvisor that were instructions to get to Poe Monkeys, uh, on TripAdvisor, the quote on there was drive to Marigold, Mississippi, stop at the gas station and ask for directions. <laughs> and so to get there, you had to turn off of Highway 61 You had to go down a slightly paved road that forked. Then you had to take a left down a gravel road, go down uh, this uh, field on one side that over the years was planted with large Christmas trees. And on the other side was this beautiful bogue where the water would either rise or lower depending on the season. And you'd make that drive for um, about a mile or so in the pitch black dark unless the moon was shining. There are no lights along this road. And then all of a sudden, you'd come upon this space that had Christmas lights and uh, strung all about the exterior of it. It's old cypress wood that was just kind of leaning and falling over. And so there's just this amazement of the structure that uh, just floored you the first time you went. So that whole journey, I totally understand how uh, travelers that aren't familiar with these country roads that so many of us in Mississippi are familiar with, that someone from New York City, for example, or Amsterdam or London or Berlin would 
just be mesmerized by even the trip out there and feel like they're going to the middle of nowhere. And then all of a sudden the structure emerges and then you go inside of it and the ceilings are really low and there's Christmas lights everywhere and there's stuffed monkeys hanging from the ceilings and there's Polaroids and old, old photographs that are pinned to the walls and calendars from the 60s and 70s and a pool table that leans really hard to the left and a DJ in a tiny corner in the back and everybody's just cramped in their old bus seats for uh, for seats and tables that are just kind of found, look like they've been found from anywhere. And so the visual of all of that was just tremendous. The second time you go, you're probably also amazed by that. But by the third time you go, it's not the visuals that keep you there. It's the people. It's the interaction. It's the dancing. It's the community. And uh, and I think that's a really important thing to keep in mind. Right. And so Willie Seabury, the owner, the proprietor, he's a, a, a you know worked on the on the, this this large family farm mm-hmm. during the day, but. He's this impresario, this yeah. kind of party ba- party leader. Tell about tell him about his about him in the in the juke joint, his yeah, nightlife so, persona. So Willie, you know, the club was generally open on Thursday nights. Um, there was a period where it was open on Monday nights, but that was very local and not touristy. Uh, so Thursday nights were what Willie called family nights, and that's when it was open to everybody. And then there would be periods kind of towards the last few years where it began to be rented out by various agencies. There'd be weddings there or something at Delta State would happen out there. Um, But Thursday night was the night, really. And Willie was a very welcoming host. He was really good at making you feel like he'd known you forever, Um, which there's no way he could have. I'd been – I went out there – quite a bit. And I'm fairly certain that if you were to ask Willie, if you were able to talk to him today and you'd say, hey, uh, Willie, I just did an interview with Will Jacks, he would he would act like he knew, but he would not know who I was. But if you were to say, hey, I did an interview with the guy that was photographing out there all the time with the picture man, portrait man, he would know exactly who I was. So he was very good at navigating those relationships and because of making every single person that came in there feel like they were his best friend. And there's no way that anybody could have that many people enter and exit their life and actually have those relationships. But it didn't matter. You, you drove down that dark gravel road. You looked at the stars up in the Delta sky. You saw these Christmas lights hanging out and you totally wanted to suspend disbelief when you entered there, and he enters the equation as this really welcoming, engaging, gregarious um, man who had a sense of humor, uh, a very sophomoric sense of humor um, that he really enjoyed, and he was the life of the party on the surface. But there's also a real man that worked on the farm during the day that was worn out, that was in his mid-70s when he passed away that was not feeling well. And you'd never really know that unless you knew him really well. So uh, he knew, even though he did not have a formal education, he knew how to run a business, and he knew how to make his guests feel really special. Yeah. We're talking with Will Jacks today on the Arts Hour, and we're talking about his brand-new book called uh, photo- book of photography called Poe Monkeys, Portrait of a Juke Joint. That's out on the University Press in Mississippi. Um, so talk about – so you were from Cleveland. When did you f- first find out about uh, 
Ho Monkeys, and then and and talk a little bit about kind of your entrance yeah. into that world. Well, uh, I am a proud product of our public school system in Cleveland, and so and, and I played football and baseball, and as many young Mississippi boys do, uh, my friends were born out of a lot of those teammates. So there were white and black friends that I ran around with. And by the time we got to be 15, got our driver's licenses, 16 and 17, um, we would go out on the weekends and we would explore and we would often go to, uh, to clubs in the African-American community. Uh, I didn't think anything of it then. I was hanging out with my friends and we were mostly just trying to find a place to drink beer when we were (laughs) not supposed to be. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I don't recall going to Pull Monkeys at that point. It's possible that we did. Um, I came down to Jackson to college at Millsaps. And so towards the end of that, probably the first time I recall being at Pull Monkeys was around my senior year. So it would have been about 94 of, of going out to Pull Monkeys, really kind of the same way that I had gone to clubs when I was in high school with my friends. It was the same, same event. So there was not anything other than uh, being a young man and having a good time with my friends the first time. And then it wasn't until maybe 2006 or seven that I went back this time as a photographer and with an interest and some training in journalism and documentation and began to examine it in that way. And you, you say in your in your kind of your essay in the book that you kind of originally went out there and were taking pictures, but mm-hmm. then you realized maybe that wasn't the right approach kind of long term. So you kind of left the camera at home and kind of yeah, re- re- kind of reset yourself. My original intent going out there with the camera was for a magazine assignment. And uh, and by that point, the world knew about Poe Monkeys. And so I was not uncovering something that other people did not know about. And I was very aware of that. Um, I was mostly curious at that point, like, why do so many people care about this place? Why, why are people coming here from all over the world? And, uh, and so after a visit or two of making photographs, it felt really uncomfortable um, because I didn't feel like I had permission to photograph. I felt like an interloper. And so I left the camera at home for a few weeks with the intention of I'm going to go back and just visit with some people and at least try to get someone that I can interact with that is like, sure, you can make my photograph. And so that's what I did, and that's what happened. And then the article was published after about nine months, which is a really long time to be given to document a specific place. Um, But it still didn't feel finished. I still felt like, I'd not done anything that any other uh, photographer or documentarian had done, uh, not just with Pomonkeys, but on our region. And, uh, and I ran into a photographic hero of mine, a guy that is a member of Magnum, the Magnum Agency, which is a really big deal in the photojournalism world. It is the pinnacle of uh, organizations within the photojournalism world. Uh, Cartier-Bresson was a founding member, for example. And so I walk in one night, and there's this gentleman sitting right there. I saw him immediately, and I was, wow. And so I went over and introduced myself, and uh, he had been there for uh, 
to do a workshop in Clarksdale. And he said to me, and I'll never forget, he, he said, you know, he then offered, I love this place. I have been here three or four times in the last two years. I come here all the time. I've been here two or three times in the last two years or three or four times in the last two years. And I immediately thought to myself, I've been here three or four times this week. And there were a lot of days that I would just make a sandwich and drive out there and uh, just sit across the road if the weather was nice or I'd circle around or I'd make photographs during the day or I'd run across Willie working in the field and stop and visit with him briefly. Mm -hmm. And in that moment, it occurred to me that I have something that this hero of mine will never have, and that is access. This is a place that is right down the road from where I live. I already know a lot of the people that come here, a lot of the people that are involved in the creation of this space, and that is the key to understanding is access. And so if I just continue to come back, I'll have what no other documentarian has, and that's the ability to be here often and frequently and not have to work at a... a, a really fast pace, but just trust the slowness of it and trust that the understanding will come through that process of visiting and being open to it. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. We're back for the final segment of the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey, and our guest is today is Will Jacks. He's got a new book of photography called Poe Monkey's Portrait of a Juke Joint out on University Press. Um, so you were talking a little bit about kind of how you set yourself in the community. So now let's talk about the, the photographs themselves. Mm. Uh, one thing, you know, Poe Monkeys, as you said, has been widely photographed. In fact, it was part of a, a Mississippi Department of Tourism campaign a few years back. It was Very kind of one so. of the one of the pieces. And so one of the things about Poe Monkeys in the photographs is its color, you know, all mm-hmm. the Christmas lights and that. Right. But you you shot in black and white. So talk a little bit about that, that choice. Uh, that was a very conscious decision early on. Um, and that was in part based on other work that had been done on juke joints. Um, Bernie Imes' work, for example, with juke joint was a big influence. Bernie was, has been, still is a big influence as well. Uh, and so part of it was thinking about, well, where does this book fit in kind of that lineage of documentation that's been done on this region? But it also occurred to me... Um, after being out there for a while, that it's it's not the structure that makes this. It's the people. It starts with Willie Seabury. Then it's followed by the regular crowd that was there every week of locals. Uh, and that that's what's important. And that's what I want to make sure to emphasize are the people that are here. That's why the title of the book is Portrait of a Juke Joint. Um, and so I deliberately wanted to take the color out because I didn't want viewers of this work to be seduced by that color and the awe of everything going on with the structure. That's kind of a given. Even in black and white, the structure itself and the interior details that are in the photographs still, I think, translate as really unique moments. Um, but I wanted to be very attentive to the people that went there. And so it was, if I can strip the space of its color and that power, 
then you're forced to look at um, everything but that. Okay. In in some of the images, uh, especially kind of in the, you know, as you start into the book, there are some, I guess they're kind of like uh, step backs from kind of scenes of shooting kind of portraiture mm. where you have like a backdrop mm-hmm. kind of outside the club. Yeah. Talk about that. What were you doing there? So one of the things that uh, that I, I learned early on in my career and definitely reinforced it with this project is that when you reach a point to where you feel like there's nothing else left, you're not finished. You've just reached the first step of getting to a richer place. And so I'd reached a point where it felt like I was making a lot of the same photographs inside the space, uh, mostly inside, some outside. And But I was also still not feeling like the regulars knew who I was or what I was doing and what I was interested in. And it was hard to have some of those conversations inside because it could get loud. And so, one, there was a wall that I needed to break through and figure out how to make a different type of image. And I recognized that there were conversations that I had not had that I needed to have. And so I began thinking about that uh, a lot and trying to figure out how I could get through. I took some different types of cameras. I took film cameras in there. I took Polaroid cameras in there. None of that seemed to work in the same way. Because uh, that's always been one of the things that I'll do if I feel stuck, just switch my tools. And and sometimes just using a different type of camera will force you to see different because you have to react different to the way that specific tool works. But that didn't work for this project. Uh, a friend of mine who is a filmmaker in Austin, Texas, and was is from Cleveland, um, Ben Powell, was coming back home to do some work. He was working on a documentary on riverboats, a documentary called Barge, that if you've not seen it, you should definitely check it out. And so he was back in the area a lot. He was working out of my studio. And so we decided that we would do a little project together and do some interviews out there. And so I knew that we couldn't do interviews inside. And so I decided uh, before he came home that I would uh, do some visual tests. And so I totally relied on Abaddon's work where he did white portraits on white backdrops around the country. And um, and so I took the white backdrop out there and did a test shot, and it was a wide shot to test the light, and I immediately liked the visual of seeing everything else around it. And that felt like, again, a continuation from a very uh, often used trope in photography of the white backdrop, no backdrop behind it. Um, and it also felt like a really good way to show some tension within it that when people would pose in front of the white backdrop, it would be a little more formal. They would feel like they're having their photograph made, and then there would be all this activity on the edges. So again, it's layers of the surface and what's beneath the surface or what's around the surface. And it also allowed for interviews to happen while we were out there. We were outside the club, so now we could have conversations. And so I did that um, for several weeks, um, maybe a couple of months. That was what I would do when I went out there and I'd photograph until the mosquitoes ran me inside. Uh, and then I'd wind up my night inside with everybody else. I'd pack up and, and, and do that. Mm -hmm. And so did the, did the portrait part that more kind of like I am taking a portrait? Did you, I know some photographers will then like do prints and then Mm -hmm. give them to the people and and then, and that kind of builds the rapport that way too. Yeah. So I would, I was able to, to, uh, to one, get names and get contact information. Um, 
and I would make prints, you know, and take them back out the next week and uh, just simple four by six prints. And I would take them back out. And if they were, if you were there again, the week after we'd give you your photographs. And if you weren't, they began to be stapled to the wall. And so whenever you came back, if your photograph was on the wall, you could take it and, uh, and take it home with you. And what happened with that, uh, in addition to people getting the photographs that I'd made out there, is the photographs that I made became a part of that structure in the way that all these other photographs were pinned around. I'm really, uh, that's really humbling to me to know that when the contents, for example, were auctioned off last November and all of the, the, uh, the ephemera that was on the walls, the photographs, the monkeys that were hanging from the ceiling, when all of that was pulled out of there, uh, my photographs were part of that collection. And, uh, and so the people that, that bought that auction actually sent me, you know, some clips, photographs of it. And they were like, Hey, here's your photographs are part of this. And so, um, so that's a, something that I had not planned on. Um, and probably a lot of people don't realize it, uh, but I do, and I always will. And that's a really nice memory for me to have. Yeah, and it also kind of speaks to just the organic nature mm-hmm. of these kind of places and how they, yeah. you know, one person can kind of come, you know, because it's a welcome, because he was a welcoming person, right. it's like you could do that. And it wasn't like, don't put that on my wall. Right. But, you know, it was like, that's just part of, you yeah, know, all of us being it. together here. Right. Yeah, so... Well, uh, so we're talking today on the Arts Hour with Will Jacks. He's got a new book of photography out called Poe Monkeys, Portrait of a Juke Joint. And, and, and then another part of this book is kind of the, the post-Poe Monkeys, is, mm. you know, the, the death of Willie Seabury and kind of a little bit about, I mean, there's not a big focus on what happened, but kind of a discussion of yeah. when these spaces, when these when the creator of a space like this mm goes away, dies, you know, retires, what happens to it and how do we, how do we deal with the legacy of it? Yeah, that's, uh, particularly after Willie died, that, that's when I began to realize, oh, wow, this is like, I'm really glad that I documented this. Um, and the weight of that shifted a bit for me, like, whoa, like there's, no more opportunity to do this. And certainly there have been other people that had documented it, but there's not been anybody else I would be willing to bet that has 20-plus thousand photographs from that space that spent 10 years going out there pretty regularly. Um, I'm pretty certain of that. And so there is an importance to this work that I hadn't really anticipated when I started it. And that's something that time just, you know, brings with it. The space itself now, and, and at one point early on, I kept trying to find answers. I was like, I've got to define this. I've got to come up with like what the answer is to this. And what I realized is I don't have answers. It's not really my place to have an answer. It's my place, hopefully, to help raise questions. If this examination, this really intense examination of a space like Pole Monkeys can create the right conversation in our state, and help pose more thoughtful questions about preservation, not just about uh, renovation, but about preservation, because preservation is not just about the structure. It's about the soul of that structure. Mm -hmm. 
And Willie Seabury was very much the soul. He was the heart of that structure. And the regulars that came out there every week were part of that soul. That's the story that should be told. And it's not my place to tell that story. Mm -hmm. And I want to hopefully, that's my intention with this book, is not to be didactic and say, here's the story of Poe Monkeys. It is to show a side of Poe Monkeys that perhaps had not been seen so that more thoughtful questions can be asked about who does come to the table to tell that story about Poe Monkeys. Um, I feel like at this point, it's not my job to, uh, to direct any of those things, but it's my job to support other people that are coming to the table to decide how the future should manage. And I think this is a really pivotal point for the state of Mississippi in our preservation of space and culture because Pull Monkeys was such a visible place and it was such an integral part of promoting Mississippi culture to the rest of the world. Come down here, come to Mississippi, go to Pull Monkeys. Now it's not there anymore. And it's not the last space or the last artist that will no longer be with us. And so as a state, I think the question is, how do you continue to create authenticity that we can share with the world when this authenticity that we have anchored so much of our marketing efforts behind is gone? Yeah. I think in a lot of ways, I think people get hung up, and I think you're getting at that, people get hung up on the physical space. Mm-hmm. When Poe Monkeys could have Poe Monkeys could have burned down and Willie Seabury could have gone into Marigold and found a place and it would have been the new Poe Monkeys. Mm -hmm. And while it wouldn't have been the rural experience, you still would have had – it was about being in that space with him and him kind of being the – the MC or whatever, the impresario, the the guy who kind of led the party. Yeah. That was the experience, not so much the physical space. I think he would have had a successful space anywhere. Willie Seabury was a leader. He was very much a leader, and people followed him. They would have followed him anywhere he wanted to go. Uh, It didn't hurt that the space was so visually engaging. Uh, And, again, that was the perfect storm of everything coming together. Um, But, yes, I think Willie would have had a tremendous space wherever he was. So uh, it is a combination of the two. Um, And there is more to be learned with this, uh, with Willie's structure, with with the house, the tenant house that was there in the spot where it was built. I think you also lose a lot of the valuable lessons by not having the the environmental surroundings if right. that were to happen. So that, yeah. that does present a very difficult challenge of how do you support a structure that is surrounded by wide open fields, wide open fields on three sides. Um, and you know, we've had structures that were similar. Walter Anderson's room, for example. Uh, I was fortunate enough to visit that when I was in high school in the original space. Mm-hmm. I've also seen it in the museum down there. And it's wonderful that it's preserved down there. And it is still powerful to go into that space in the museum. But it's also not quite the same as being on that property, right. on the land where he also walked. Yeah, yeah. Well, Will, thank you so much for coming in. We really appreciate it. Um, if people want to learn more about your work, about the book and, and your other projects, where should we send them? Uh, well, my website is whjax.com. 
Um, and then University Press has a lot of information that is on their website as well uh, as far as a schedule of where I'll be for signings. I think coming up I'll be in Clarksdale uh, in a couple of weeks. Uh, and then that's probably it for this year. And then I'll be in Greenville, Mississippi uh, at the first of the year. I'll be in Nashville, New Orleans, all of those being worked out. Selma, Alabama, I'm going to do some stuff over there too, probably Memphis as well. So all of those as we formalize those dates – uh, and locations. Those will all be both on my website as well as the University Press website. Excellent. Well, thanks again for coming in. Uh, for those of you who've tuned in late and you'd like to listen back or share the show with a friend, you can go to the MPB website at mpbonline.org. They post all our past shows as streaming files, and you can also uh, download it as a podcast. Until next time, we'll be seeing you around.